Welcome to Going Deep, the RSP cast with Brandon Angelo and Matt Waldman. We get to do this every other week, and it's such a pleasure to be able to join you. We've got a couple of fun topics, don't we, Brandon? Absolutely, yeah. It's it's that that time of year. got the holidays, and we have have games Saturday, Sunday, Monday, so it's going to be fun. Yeah, man, it's going to be great. And, uh, you know, one other thing, if you are an RSP subscriber in the past, you know about this. If you haven't subscribed to the RSP, um, this is really a perfect time to do so because I do a pre-order discount for the April 1 um, pre-draft guide and you also get a post-draft guide with it one week after the NFL draft um, that I've been doing for 19 years. You can find it at mattwaldman.com and you can learn more about it there. But it's available for $19.95. You're going to get probably between 900 to 1,000 pages of content with the <laughs> RSP. Worth every page, too. I'll tell you that much. Uh, uh, I appreciate that. And it's, you know, certainly certainly the best thing I do in this space in terms of what I, what I try to offer as a content provider. Um, and, Absolutely. you know, so if you want to learn more about it and the scouting reports that I get, there's videos where you can take a tour. You can look at some sample scouting reports, you know, at my site, mattwaldmanrsp.com. I know I have two sites. I have kind of a low overhead operation. We'll put it that way. Eventually I'll be combining the two, the two sites, the sales site with the WordPress site that I have down the line and getting that together, but hasn't stopped people from, you know, being able to access it easily and, and be able to enjoy the product that it is. Um, and of course, you know, the, if you are one of the regular subscribers, I know you're waiting for the 22nd. That's the day that the um, pre-order ended, will be ending, and you can begin ordering at full price, which is only $2 more, twenty one ninety five for both products. Um, you know, I also offer a projections and rankings product that is for dynasty rankings and projections that's available for $24.95. They really go well together. You kind of tie the two, the data and the, and and the, uh, and the scouting reports. So, you know, if you're looking more for like reports on the, everything about the player that will help with your waiver wire and knowing for long-term, um, what these players can offer, then, the the pre-draft post-draft is your is your ticket if you're just looking for i want answers i don't need much um explanation as to why i just want to know where you rank all dynasty players including rookies but i don't need to know whether why they're good or not i just want to know what the trend is right now then you can get that and that's updated multiple times during the year it starts in june and and then i give a june update um a twice in August, usually September, and then once a month, but the projections are summer and then the rankings are throughout, you know, multiple times throughout the year until December. And then I give you one more in June to say, hey, remember remember this? And then if you want to reorder, you can reorder for, you know, reorder for that next year. So, yeah. So listen, you know, one of the things that you brought up this week was you have some ideas on there's parallels between these players and it's you know there you can see some of what i'm what you're gonna you know some of the players you mentioned here you can see some parallels off on the surface but i know it goes deeper than this and especially as you really think about it lamar jackson james cook jameer gibbs and christian mccaffrey so tell me 
you know, why you were thinking like, listen, Matt, I've got a good one here that we need to, we need to talk about. Yeah, it's actually really interesting. I actually didn't bring this up. One of my good friends, longtime friends who, who's a really, really avid football watcher like I am, shot text and was like, what do you think about this? And it was like, it was a video of like Lamar Jackson. He was and someone commented like, why is it like Lamar Jackson's always running 80%? Like, oh my God, this is, this is incredible. And I watched Lamar, I was watching the Lions game, and I saw the same commonalities that I saw with Lamar Jackson. Then I saw with James Cook, too, in Buffalo, what he did in that Cowboys game, and I'm watching Christian McCaffrey. And the one thing those guys all have in common that you can tie them together is how well they control the pace of their own game. And that is one of the biggest signs of high-level cognitive athletes, right? So we're looking at athletes who can control space and time, but also know how to control their own gears on a given play. Like Lamar Jackson never reaches top gear. Right? It, it, it's he's like the polar opposite of like Isaiah Pacheco. Who's right. only running a hundred miles an hour, but that's all you you get zero or a hundred. Yeah. Right? If a guy like check with like Lamar, you're getting that what do I need to do on a given down to be successful? Right. I'm seeing that type of high level ball with James Cook. And it's really hard to tackle those guys and corral them in space because they're moving at a different pace on every single play. And that's the big thing. That's why Christian McCaffrey is so successful. Yes. Right? He's not He's not overly big. He's not blazingly fast. He's a very fast guy, but he's not, he's not Chris Johnson, right? But what he can do is control pace and the tempo of his runs to set up blocks and, and get the get a, the defender's angle, get an advantage on the defender's angle, and do that down the dot. Because he's trying to make the given play successful. And the one thing these guys do really well is I was thinking of the last time I saw Lamar Jackson just get rid of. I can't remember. No. Like, I cannot remember the last time I saw Lamar Jackson get rid of. I was watching Jameer Gibbs too. And he, you know, he played he played a great game. He, he's slipping and sliding out of tackles. And and one thing I noticed with Gibbs too is if it wasn't really there. He's protected himself and went down and got And he's okay doing that. Young young players a lot of times are not okay making that step. They they want to break the big run every time. Uh, I heard of Robert Sala actually making that come with Bruce Hall. That's like James. That's why James's brother Dalvin is getting more work in New York because Bruce Hall trying to hit the home run every time. Either you're getting a home run or you're striking out. He's like that old baseball player who's hitting 198, but he has 20 home runs. Yeah, it's great when it works, but a lot of times you have to control your own the tempo of your own run and get what's get get what's blocked. Or in the case of like Lamar Jackson, like you're the field judge, so you're dictating the pace, the tempo, the flow of the game. You're trying to get four or five, not trying to make that risk and get 15, 20, but 
you might get negative three on that. Right? You put yourself behind from a down a distance standpoint. And those guys are becoming what I why are those guys those guys are becoming the engines of their own offense. McCaffrey's already the engine of the 49ers. I'm seeing that same commonality with Cook and Jameer Gibbs is they're becoming the engine of their own offense. If you watch the Detroit Lions, you know, if you watch them play, they're much more successful with Jameer Gibbs on the field, not because Jameer Gibbs is so much better of a player than Dave Montgomery, but defenses have to think a lot more when Jameer Gibbs is out. The range of outcomes is much more bad, right? Dave Montgomery very rarely will break a 25-plus yard. Jameer Gibbs leading the league in 20-plus yards. So there's a big difference there, but it's really a big difference of being on your toes and doing a lot more you know, dynamically in terms of scheme. But I thought those were really interesting parallel from a pace, tempo, and just an overall like movement intellect standpoint when you talk about those guys. I love this topic because it is a great parallel and it also extends to not just about it, it paces paces a great way of describing it, but it's not just them controlling their own pace, but it's also being able to gauge the pace of others. Um, and it's a marriage between the two because when you watch Lamar Jackson, you know, I saw, I think it was Darius Butler did some analysis that Greg Cosell retweeted this week about Lamar Jackson's really improving from the pocket. And, and I thought to myself, well, you know, no offense to Darius Butler. He's probably been playing and, and may not have noticed and not have studied Lamar on that level and may be new as an analyst as well. But um, that's bullshit. Yeah. You know, Lamar Jackson has always been great from the pocket. And scouts have noticed that who didn't conclude that, or write him off as a wide receiver playing the quarterback position. They right. knew that a long time ago. And one of the reasons he was great in the pocket is that he could stand in there in far tighter confines than what Butler was even showing in the games, in the highlights that he was doing. And and I'm not banging on Butler's analysis. It was smart analysis on what he did. It was just kind of, there was an inadvertent historical revisionist attitude about Jackson. Because when you watch him, he he could play in the tightest of pockets and be comfortable. Whereas like, we've talked about Kyler Murray and when somebody gets within three yards of him, he right. runs as if a bomb has blown up, up in the right. pocket. Jamar Lamar Jackson could have a bomb blow up in the pocket. And I would bet he would be one of the few quarterbacks that would be able to dodge the shrapnel and still throw the ball downfield. I mean, right. that's, 100%. you know, so, and when you look at McCaffrey or cook, it's the same thing. I'm still, while you were talking, I was literally looking up where I could find something on Twitter of a run that I showed of cook at Georgia that was the one that really intrigued me because it explained or it visually illustrated similar um, thoughts uh, about what you were saying. Is that right. his feet? Because I wrote here it was. It's a video that has him against Tennessee, where I'm showing his curvilinear skills and feel for tight confines. Um, is that you know his ability 
to really understand engage you know where defenders are and where they aren't and to understand to integrate that into his own skill set people who and i think that's the point i want to make is that all these players you mentioned all of them can take can survey the situation around them and have a great gauge for in relation to what defenders are doing within the scope of the play and how they can leverage their skills Mm -hmm. how much or how little and they know their boundaries and their body well enough to be able to do that that's why like a guy a good example of that of a quarterback who might have been able to do it if he studied the game was johnny manziel like johnny manziel had that in college in he had it in spades in college but in the pros he was gonna need like more time and effort to really be a student of like what can i get away with what i can't because you see it yeah you see it how like you know when usually with quarterbacks you see it when like a 325 to 350 pound dt runs them down as they break a pocket that's that learning moment for them to go okay this is what i used to be able to do i can no longer do that and who learns from it and i think that the guys you mentioned that's that interplay for them is their body awareness their awareness of what's going around them and the ability to really just adjust and know their game the way like ali used to sit on the ropes and let people try and tire themselves out and he would he would totally but i'm sure that he had to you know there were times probably in his training camp you know where he's getting busted up by some by some boxers some good pros until he figured out what i can and can't do that i was able to do when i was younger yeah, it's it's interesting because a lot of times it's 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 the uh, it's constraints versus no constraints, right? Yeah. So a lot of, it's like structure versus versus lack of structure, right? So like for a guy like Lamar Jackson, people thought he was very good with with no structure, which is true. People thought, well, he's not very good when there is structure, which is false. Very good when there's structure. So with guys like that, you learn that they're so good without structure that they don't need structure. It's not that they're not good in structure. They don't need it to succeed. Yeah. Well, a lot of people need structure in their, in their daily lives, right? Or in their jobs to have a ton of success. But you see all these guys, they're all so good in the structure of a given play because they understand the bandwidth of what the play can give them. Yeah. Not every play in the NFL is in a score touchdown. Not every play is going to get 15 yards. They know what they can get based on their own capabilities, based on what's blocked them, based on what the defense is, how the defense is playing them. And also, too, it's curvy linear move, especially for these guys, how they're being tackled, right? Yeah. How they're being contacted, high, low, direct, indirect. I'll need to kind of manage those contact types, not get hurt, and live and find another depth. Because that's really the most important thing, you know, for guys that get hit 200 times a year, it's being able to understand different contact types, how to manage them, how to negate them, 
um, and have their punishment they need to. Yeah, and I think I love how you brought up Brees Hall because Brees Hall, to me, you can see that with a better line, even without the skills you're mentioning, he's going to be a big time yardage producer. I think oh, like, for sure. it's going to be it's it's going to be scary. But when you watch him play, and I this is you're one of the few people I can have this conversation with, and I know you're going to get exactly what I'm talking about. He runs what makes him so awesome but at the same time like why coaches are probably have dalvin cook getting a little more time is that he runs one disaster from a time at a time like he averts <laughs> sure. one disaster at a time sure. like you know you know how like you you watch someone and they're like they're like i'm just gonna i'm going to take on what's in front of me at the moment and he processes that extremely fast um but it's in a way where he's not maybe seen two steps ahead or he's not seen it in the full scope as what right. you've talked about with these other players. So he's one of those guys that when you watch him, you go, wow, the fact that he's just literally doing, just going, okay, what do I do next? What do I do next? What do I do next? And he can get eight yards on that play is incredible, but it's not optimal for what he could be. Sure. You know? yeah. And that makes it all the more fascinating. I'm going to share this and see if I can just, you know, um, I'm going to share the screen with, uh, I yeah, found yeah, this, yeah. this, this tape of him. All right. Of cook. And it was just this play from Tennessee. It was like one of the first plays I saw and I'm going to see if I can find it like all the way through because I stop it a lot explaining stuff, but you'll see that you've got two pullers right here and just see how he's like you know the penetration that's in that backfield for him to to be able to work through that and then avoid 24 and dip around and you just see you know it's a perfect go back, go back go yeah back, go back, i will so what makes this really unique and makes it so hard to defend and why this is why he's becoming a really high level ball player is play it i'll tell you this stuff okay Now, so can you see my cursor or no? If you probably can't. If you can't, it's fine. It's so okay. watch, look at Cook's face mask. Look at where his left knee is pointing. Yeah. So when 33 and 24 are coming downhill here, they are looking, they have a side. Everybody's a sideline as a defender. Usually it's a sideline of a, if you're, trying to make a tackle, right? From a movement standpoint, you're looking at someone from a linear fashion. So you think that this person is going to come directly at you because that's where their hips are going. So James Cook, eyes, hips, shoulders, all there. So his opportunity is going linear. But what he does is he's able to play it yeah, we're gonna wait for it to me finish talking yeah, through it. It's probably gonna go through. No, it's fine. So what he's able to do is he's literally able, like, look at where his legs are. Yeah, he's able to bend path quicker than the defender can make a decision of where he's going. Yeah, that's the really unique part about the game and why 
this wouldn't be possible if James Cook was 205 pounds. These are the type of maneuvers that are only possible with smaller and why these type of players are getting so much more playing time in shorter down and distances because this type of movement isn't possible with your 205 plus pound guys. You can't move that quickly with that much flexibility in that lower half to then produce force getting upfield. That is impossible to do. And also not fall. Yeah. Like, look at where his ankles are. And if yeah. you play, he's still getting five, six plus yards after this. Yeah. And it's just, it's ridiculous. Like, I mean, this is probably one of the, this, if you look at this play, this is one of those plays when you circle this and you ask how many can do this. Yeah. And the answer is, I can count them on one. Yeah. And Not very many. Yeah, exactly. And when you see, like, as he takes the exchange, I mean, there's literally two unblocked defenders off the edge, if you're just listening to this. This will be on YouTube. But two unblocked defenders off the edge and penetration into where the puller is, who's basically stifled the first puller. Um, on this play and he's just taking the ball from Stetson Bennett in fact he doesn't even have his hands on the ball the ball's in his chest with right. Stetson Bennett's grip on him and that's what he's facing and then after he takes the exchange he takes one step and he's basically on the outside hip of his sec backside puller and is able to make a quick little turn with his hips so that he can split the front side or the the he was on the front side hip of his puller with a def unblocked defender coming to the outside shoulder of that puller unblocked right. he's able to split the inside hip of that puller and a defender who just came off a missed block and he makes that def both defenders miss yeah and it's literally like he ran through a phone booth with two people reaching for him and i don't and i'm and i think literally the lit width of a phone booth. He just made two people yeah. miss in a phone booth. And, it, and no, it, it's it's remarkable because there's no there's no deceleration here. So there's no there's no downshift. Yeah, it's all just one fluid succession. Yeah, and that's and but that's what I think too. The NFL is moving towards at the running back position. Because if you think about a play like this, your bigger backs, your Derrick Henrys, even your Saquon Barclays, yeah, were great movers, super dynamic, physically cannot get in and out of these positions as quickly as your James Cooks, your Jameer Gibbs, your Christian McCaffreys, those type of movers. Yeah. Because they can get in and out of spaces in a very different, more difficult fashion. I was thinking about this today. I saw a clip of Derrick Henry, and I'm like, someone's like, hey, who can tackle Derrick Henry in his prime? I'm like, no, like, very few. But who's more, if you ask an NFL linebacker, 
who's more difficult to tackle? Derrick Henry or Christian McCaffrey or Jameer Gibbs or James Cook? The answer might surprise people because it's not just the sheer size of Derrick Henry. Yeah. Right? It's, oh man, I have to deal with Christian McCaffrey's feet. Yep. I have to deal with the reacceleration of Jameer Gibbs, right? And so that's really the interesting mold of what's more difficult to deal with. And if you're like, a, you know, if you watch the Tennessee Titans, you know, if they're if the run game isn't working with Derrick Henry, it ain't working. Like you're not fixing it mid game. Like that's the issue. Like they've keyed it. If, if we have a ton of the box on Henry at this stage in his career, it's gonna be hard to get anything going, right? Your, your other guys, your cooks. Cooks, your Gibbs, your McCaffrey, you know, Mara, you can put in there as well. Like they can still they can still produce in a different way. Yeah. And it's just really interesting stuff. I mean, then when we talk about producers and moving, you know, moving the chain, so to speak, where do you have guys like from a receiver standpoint? Malik Neighbors, Marvin Harrison Jr., and their ability to producing the NFL offense immediately. Yeah. And that's what we're going to talk about next. It's a great top segue into our next topic. And just before we get to it, I will add, just want to add that like the, I love your point about Derrick Henry and, you know, probably the only answer you'd say where you'd prefer not to take on Derrick Henry would be in the fourth quarter. If he's getting um, over 15 to 18 touches and he's already pounded you into the ground yeah. and you don't want to, and you are now tired and don't and beaten up and are making business decisions. But right. you could also argue that any of the backs that we've talked about in the past 20 minutes are also players that in the fourth quarter, you probably don't want to face either because if they're on a roll, you can, you're always guessing with them with Derek Henry. Right. You're not guessing. You're just praying that you, you can hit him low. You're praying right. you don't have to take him on high right. and that you're not caught in a situation where you have to make a business decision or get hurt trying to tackle him. Um, right. And I'll add this, you know, I love the point about Barkley because Barkley's a more agile version of an Adrian Peterson type of runner in the sense sure. of like back in the day, the thing that made Adrian Peterson great was that he could the jump he was always jump cuts jump cuts or bust with him in a lot of yeah. ways but he, he was so violent with it is like you'd see that him jump and plant his feet on the ground and i think i had a joke on twitter one day where i took a picture of a piece of land that had like the dirt was cracked that's no, right yeah he's an earth mover man it yeah nuts and it i was crazy to watch yeah i i literally took a picture and said adrian peterson just jump jump cut here Here's the crack in the earth to prove it because it was to be able to plant so hard to do it. And he was doing it even in his later in his career with Detroit and was successful at times doing that. But that's a that much energy put into cutting is no oh, longer man. as effective oh, anymore in today's game. Now, the one back who is big, as big as Barkley who can who has gotten away with it and been efficient has been Nick Chubb. Um but Absolutely. his moving, but what he does that's so unique is 
he has a strange he has a strange thing where he I'm gonna see if I can find it real quick um, where I've I've shown this and actually this is one of those plays he also did this play with the Eagles um, and I I show that as well but here's a play where I remember seeing this and going, okay, this guy is probably special. Um, let's see if it'll just, we'll, we'll run it all the way through. But it's, you don't see it very well from this first angle um, because it's broadcast view, but he's going to, he's going to hurdle a fallen body here. And then that defensive back who's waiting for him at the five, he's going to literally like cut, bounce outside of that after leaping over a defender. And you can see, He's in really tight quarters, and when I saw that, I was like, I I need to see the the red zone view of this because how did he make that cut? You know, that was the that was the thing that really got to me. So let me see if I can find it. Here we go. So this was so they show the play, and you know, it's just essentially a toss. Gets downhill, and I think we get a chance to see it here. And if we don't, I can show you the Eagles play. But he's done this multiple times where he goes airborne and watches outside foot. It's literally turned. It's literally turned to the boundary when he lands. Like to be able to like or pivots it as he lands, and the ability to like just do that in such tight space was just um yeah. unique. You, you yeah. Know? Yeah, he's just, he's, I mean, super unfortunate injury with Shelton this year, but I mean, yeah. how he prepares for the ground here is super important. Like, he doesn't prepare to, like, catch himself, right? He prepares to re-excel. Yes. Which is, you know, that's Nick Chubb doing T, because he, he's one of the best ever re-accelerating post-contact. Yeah. So, that makes, yeah, I mean, he's, he's probably one of the most underappreciated players in the NFL. 100%. Yeah, so just that kind of thing was fascinating to me as a point of discussion. But yeah, um, you know, we can end this. But, you know, yeah, great career. I'd argue he's a Hall of Fame caliber talent. We'll see if he Absolutely gets is. an opportunity to, to be, a, you know, if he gets the opportunity from the media. But that's another uh, that's another story. So we're going to stop sharing that. We're done with that. But, but yeah, your point about Malik Neighbors and Marvin Harrison Jr. So the last time we convened, we kind of teased this idea that we were going to talk about them because we both discovered that we liked Malik Neighbors and by kind of a healthy margin over Marvin Harrison Jr., though we both appreciate Marvin Harrison as a guy who could very well behind end up being one of the most productive, if not the most productive rookie in this class if he finds the right fit and continues to develop his game. And that and I think that's a stark difference from some people who you'll hear talk about Marvin Harrison Jr. as if he is already there. He's right. the best wide receiver prospect in a long time and people are going nuts about him. But you're not, you and I aren't alone. Chad Ryder, who I'm friendly with, who's at NFL.com, he hadn't seen us talk, but he, I asked him what he thought of, um, we were talking about receivers and he mentioned Malik Neighbors and gave glowing thoughts as well. And, and I said, what do you think of Marvin Harrison Jr.? He said, oh, yeah, I like him. I said, but I think Malik Neighbors is that, 
is right. that guy. I think it's pretty clear. Right. And it's interesting that, you know, with that. So what is it, you know, you can start in either direction you want to. What is it about one that you, that people you feel like need to know versus the other, or just, you know, in terms of what do you, what do people need to know that they don't know about each of these guys? I think with Malik Neighbors, I think the difference right in their games is Malik Neighbors is NFL ready on all three levels of the field. Marvin Harrison Jr. is NFL ready, which is level three. That's the big difference. That's the contrast in those three. Now, I think a guy like Harrison Jr. has a higher ceiling. Don't think he's going to be better than a Malik Neighbors until about three. But I think Malik Neighbors can come into the NFL and be a 1,100-plus-yard receiver Yes, and have 10-plus touchdowns. I think Marvin Harrison Jr. is going to have a little bit more of a learning curve because if you look at two things he doesn't do well, he doesn't take contact over the middle of the field. He doesn't protect himself well enough. Um, and he's not as good after the catch as people think he is. So that's something that I think he's going to grow into. He's not the mover that neighbors as well, which is, I think, going to limit his route tree initially. Yeah. He's very good vertically because you, you, you have a guy like him who's 6'3", 6'4", who is as fast as he is. You know, he's going to be able to win on some of those on some go balls, post routes, and so be be that type of player. But I don't think he's going to be as initially impactful as the guy neighbors who can be the engine of NFL offense fairly quickly. Um, and I think that's the difference. Is I think we have to we're going to impatiently wait. I think for Marvin Harrison Jr. to be an elite receiver in the NFL, I think the neighbors is closer to that right now than Harrison Jr. is. I think both are going to be potential top ten receivers in the league in the next five years. Yeah. I think both are incredibly good players. Um, I just think there's this kind of aura around Harrison Jr. right now that I just don't understand as much. I think he's a very good prospect, but I don't think he's as good of a player as he is a prospect if that makes sense yes right? yeah i think that's the big thing um i also think you can move neighbors around seamlessly you know i think you can put neighbors in the backfield you can you put them in the slot put them out wide put them at z like there's so many things you can do i think a guy like harrison jr i think until he proves he can win against win one-on-one against corners and number one corners in the NFL. He's not going to go to Trump. I think you want to move a guy like him in the slot a little bit initially, right? Get him get him used to the NFL game. But I think that's the biggest difference is I think right now it's just the, the diversity of neighbors game I think is much more refined. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. Like the things that, things that concern me about Harrison, and I when I say concern, I'm saying concern me relative to the to the the buzz people are giving you, you know but the things that he's gonna have to learn to to approach that buzz he when he plays outside he opens his chest up too often to the defender as he's trying to work off the line and doesn't provide a move 
Like he's not using footwork releases or different types of, re- he does use them, but he doesn't, there are situations where he doesn't use them, just tries to outrun the guy, opens his chest and gets pinned to the boundary or gets, can't overcome the contact that he's dealing with, even as physical as he is. Um, and I watched this against Penn State last year, Michigan last year, Georgia at the end of the year. You, you know, there were issues like that. Then there's then there's um, waiting until the late uh, latest window of possible arrival of the ball um, to make the catch. You know, whereas a guy like Chris Olave would kind of play with what window he could catch the ball at. Like sometimes he'd catch it at the earliest window. Sometimes he'd gauge the coverage and know that if he attempted the earliest window, he might draw the defender in and get hit earlier. But if he waited till the last window, the defender would probably pass under the ball and he could catch it. But Harrison seems to wait until the ball is into his body or at the highest point, um, not only above his head, but beyond his head, like behind him to where instead of catching the ball at a high point with his overhand position, he'll go up and start to turn and try and make the catch and over the shoulder grab and let it go over him because he's either a, and I don't know his motivation. I can only estimate what it is. He's either a trying to maximize the uh, opportunity to get yards after the catch by turning downfield or B he's, um, he's more comfortable catching the ball underhand, which leads to my next point because he is definitely more, he can catch overhand, but he likes to catch underhand. That's his default attack position. And so he'll often attack targets that, that he should be attacking with overhand position with underhand position allows the ball into his body or allows defenders to be able to break up the pass because now the ball's closer into his frame against tight coverage and he ends up dropping passes that really you wouldn't expect a prospect of his skills to drop um so with that mind these are things that are obviously correctable and then you can look at it and say um, especially the underhand, you could say, are there players who catch underhand and have no problem with it, even though they're rampant with, you know, maybe not using optimal attack? Well, Terry McLaurin is is the big sure. exception. Um, I would say McLaurin is the best exception. And there are other guys who do it on occasion, but not rampantly as as McLaurin does. And they're, they're, they're good, but the guys who make it a habit, it's their reflexive habit, tend to struggle more often. The only other exception that I remember now, and I didn't evaluate him because it was before my time starting to study guys, but the best ever to do it was his dad. His dad, if you go watch his dad's tape, which I went to do a couple weeks ago and just watched highlights, it was like every, almost like almost every target I saw on like 20 minutes of highlights was literally him underhand trapping the ball to his chest and making amazing catches with great tracking but it was like yeah everything that you would say don't do that that's not what you that's yeah, not what you, you don't say anything that just keeps working yes and that's the yeah his dad never dropped the ball i guess the thing is like he literally was notorious for not dropping bass yeah um but and yeah, it was, I mean, it's crazy. And it was bad technique. You know, well, I wouldn't say bad. 
it was suboptimal, you know. Yeah. So it was suboptimal, and most guys need optimal technique to play at the level Marvin Harrison Senior did. Right? Yeah, hundred percent. Because I think, yeah, you you afford yourself a little leeway if you if you do anything to the ninety ninth percentile, right? Yeah, you afford yourself that leeway, which Marvin Harrison Senior uh, did. But yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's the that's the difference between those two as prospects. I think as like pure athletes. Pretty similar, I think. Martinez, Martinez Jr. is a very unique linear athlete because of his speed. Yeah. Um, how good of an accelerator he is. Um, obviously, he has an incredibly high ceiling. Like that, you know, the ones you get the, you know, the, like the I guess the inkling that oh my gosh, Martinez Jr. is not a good prospect. He's a very good prospect. Yeah. It's just he has. When you're talking about analyzing these guys, he has more glaring long-term needs than a Malik Neighbors, yeah. where there's really right now, if you look at Malik Neighbors, there's nothing that he can't do at a potential Pro Bowl, All-Pro level. Yep. And the things that you would say he cleaned up from last year to this year, right? Just like any, there was more so just a consistency standpoint. Yeah. Going from inconsistent to consistent and that's the thing too is he was one of he was the most consistent he should have won off in my opinion he was the most consistent receiver in college football yeah his um, his ability he has he has a massive vocabulary of footwork maneuvers and mm -hmm. handwork maneuvers that he applies at a very savvy level for this mm -hmm. stage he he is excellent at using pacing not only Absolutely. with his footwork but with his routes so to your point about running backs and lamar jackson uh -huh. this is a receiver who is excels at pacing variation yep. and the best receivers tell stories well like that michael crabtree was a terrific route runner for, for a while for his size because he understood how to use pace and you see that with him. He understands how to set people up. You're, I mean, to me, he's up there with guys like Odell Beckham Jr. For sure. J Justin Jefferson. Maybe he may not get that level of production, but the the skill set that he has, it matches it pound for pound in terms of what he could potentially yeah. do year one. 100%. I 100% agree. I think it's going to be interesting to see what their pre-draft process looks like. And also, I think one of Margaret Jr. might go back to school. Yeah. This is, a, this is an actual thing. And I think this is, a, you know, an interesting segue into probably what we're going to talk about next time is how is the transfer portal and NIL going to impact roster evaluations in yeah. the NFL? Right? Some of these guys aren't going to be in NFL rosters when they're anticipated to be. Yeah. So imagine the biggest, like a big shakeup, like let's say Caleb Williams went back to USC. Yeah. Right? Or Marvin Harrison Jr. went back to Ohio State for the senior season. Like if, what would, like that would dramatically shift what some of these front offices are seeing at the end of their year. Yeah. If you think you're in position to get a, you know, to get a Caleb Williams or Marvin Harrison Jr. caliber prospect, let's say, and they're going back to school. That's, if that happens, I think it's really only going to take one blue chipper 
as a prospect to take the NIL, go back to school. And I think it's going to really start a chain reaction of guys who are going to continue to do this. Yeah. So you're going to get, and what you're going to get is you're going to get prospects that are a year older. Yeah. So that's going to really shape, misshape the evaluations of, of what the NFL is becoming as a prospect standpoint. And I think something that's interesting is someone brought up, well, what is the NCAA going to do to you know, kind of combat this, right? Like, what are they going to do? Well, probably nothing because it makes them a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, right? they, they, they want the star. They, you want to, you want the star of your show to be the star of your show for as long as they can. Right. Yeah. And that's a big deal. What the NFL might do to combat this is all right. One and done. That might be the next, that might be the next downward to fall in the next three to five years, 10 years is you might see the NFL instituting the same rules as the NBA in terms of being one and done. I think that's a possibility. If, if Explain that to folks who don't watch NBA. Sure. So basically you can go to one year of college and be one year removed from high school, I believe it is, and go straight to the NBA. Uh, so I, yeah, no, I think sure. that's going to be – so basically let's say um, – who's a really good example? Um, so let's say Marvin Harrison Jr. after his freshman season is like CM Gordon. Can't do that right now. Yeah. But – in five, 10 years, that might actually come to fruition because the NFL wants to keep the owners happy and they want to combat the aging of prospects. You, the younger talent you have, the, the more time you have in the... So they might in turn say, all right, we're going to combat the NIL by... Enforcing a one and done. So what if? So what if? And I'm trying to look at this from an optimistic, maybe idealistic standpoint. What if this whole business that is college football um, actually drives the NFL to force them to d- develop players to actually develop? I think that is. If you look at it from a like from a a deeper player development lens, I think it's going to really force front offices to be a lot more intentional with their draft picks and not take as many darts. Yeah. Right? And, and, and play it not based on traits, but based on what the player is now. Because you might not get, like, you can, you know, if you look at the, draft class the last three to five years. You could kind of year before guess who's gonna be first rounders, right? At least I'd say half of the first round you could you can probably guess, right? But what happens if that half of the first round turns the only Yeah. Right? Then the game changes a bit because then you really have to you really have to hit on those guys. And also too one thing you're gonna have to do, I think the backup quarterbacks going to become more important. Yeah. That's going to be a super important one. I think yeah. teams are going to start to take um, start multiple to take quarterbacks. quarterbacks. Yeah, yeah. I think as early as the second. And they're going to have to. And I think they're going to have to develop them. They're going to have to find yeah. coaches who will in-house work yeah. with them on 
fundamental skills yep. and they may have to spread that to other positions because yep. if I'm going to take a quarterback who's 19 years old, we haven't had success with that in the NFL. So, but if I'm going to do that because I feel like he's too good of a prospect, then I'm going to take him and I'm probably going to take another one the year after that and another one the year after that. Yeah. And we're going to need to, and at first they're going to be stupid or foolish about it. And, these guys are going to bomb one after the next and occasionally sure. you're going to get a one that works great and teams right. are going to go the wrong direction. But the smart team's going to go, These all these veterans have coaches. I'm going to hire one of these coaches and we're going to work on their development and we're going to try and get better at about actually doing what everyone likes to think they already do, which is coach them up. And we've already talked about how they don't coach up players. We've been talking about this for years. So they don't coach up players that way. You know, you you know more people and work with more people and what you do goes a longer way towards coaching up players to get ready for the league than yeah, it's, because it's they're really, scheme-oriented. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be too pronged when we're talking about like developing athletes. And I'll be honest, a lot of pros don't want to be developed. They, they've been told their whole life they're – the best you know, there you know what doesn't stink yep and they're the best and a coach as well doesn't want to change philosophically based on the play right yep. so it's really just you know we're seeing this in atlanta it's personnel over scheme is not the case it's scheme over personnel and everybody is like get arthur smith out of here because it's losing us games. Well, yeah, it's going to bite you in the butt. You know, you 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 have a top eight pick in Bajan Robinson, who is a rhythm runner who gets better with the more touches he gets. And you're giving him as many touches as Cordell Patterson and Tyler Coach, right? And yeah. just not just stubbornness. And so that's what happens with coaches, too, is you get stubborn in terms of, well, my philosophy in terms of X, Y, Z is going to be the same way because I'm coaching the NFL. I deserve that player same way. Yep. I'm a player in the NFL. I am the upper echelon of athleticism. I don't want you telling me what to do because I make more money than you do, yep. Joe Smith, the quarterback coach. Yep. And so that's what happens a lot. So you see a lot more clash there. Um, and good organizations – are able to find players who believe the values of, I don't know everything. I'm a human being. I want to get better at my craft and coaches that marry that same sentiment. Right? So that's really successful locker rooms do that. Right? The Lions are the biggest proponent of that. Right? Yeah. They are not as talented as some of those teams in the NFL, but they play an unselfish brand of football that works with those guys' personalities. Like, think about the guys they have in the locker room. Yeah. Right? Ross St. Brown, David Montgomery, Jared Goff, Sam McCord is a great fit, Jameer Gibbs, listen to him speak. They're bringing in guys that fit that cultural mold. And every once in a while, they'll bring in guys like a James William who doesn't fit that well, and then try to help kind of massage him along into that. Yeah. Because you have a strong enough locker room to Bingo. see if it'll work. And that's the thing is like these, I'll give you two examples is like once I'm Sam Laporta 
I had a I had a, a, a scout a former scout and analytics consultant with a biomechanics and stats specialty in terms of like his higher education who worked for about 30 teams at, at during his career like he had direct lines to GMs and he's been a longtime RSP subscriber and he said he just wrote me like about a month ago so you really nailed the Laporte evaluation and I had to laugh because um, I wasn't extremely high on him because I thought he needed the perfect fit and he found the perfect fit. But I love that you wrote on your floor scenario is that the coach and that the floor scenario for Laporta is that he winds up on the bench getting fattened up and put on special teams because the coach and the GM are in a pissing match over um, who, whether he should have been drafted or not. The coach wanting like an inline tight end who can really block and the GM giving him a weapon and the coach going, I need you to gain 20 pounds and I need you to block. And he winds up barely playing and not being very effective. And the coach going, see GM, I told you this guy couldn't, wasn't good for our team. And he laughed. He goes, that happened. That's the literally the RIP for so many NFL players that they get involved in that. And that's the point. And then when you talk about players not wanting to listen, I mean, Drew Locke is a great example, and he had such a good, you know, story this on Monday night, you know, and yeah. it was nice to see, you know, you could tell he was so grateful for his opportunity to play again, and yeah. he's questioned it, and he may have had the near career death experience that Sigmund Bloom's talked about in the past that players can have due to this lack of maturity, and what, what the story I'm going to tell is that, you know, when I evaluated Drew Locke, you know, there were people talking about him in a Patrick Mahomes-esque skill set type of manner. And I was like, listen, this is like the, the difference between like a pop musician who plays an instrument and a jazz musician who plays an instrument um, where, you know, the more popular thing is the pop musician, but the level of skill sometimes that they have isn't as deep. It's still a great skill, but it may not yeah. be as deep so as the guy who strictly yeah. plays. So when you watch Drew Locke, his game was much more surface level than Patrick Mahomes' game. And, and and when watching Locke, it looked like, I mentioned that he looked like a player who was a top prospect in high school and everyone was telling him that he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And then he went to a mid-tier SEC school and they were like, we need you because you're good enough to, to help right. us compete. But when, but he was, he basically did what he wanted to do, how he wanted to do it as a player. Cause you could tell that he just, you know, he was undisciplined with his techniques and some of the things he did conceptually. And then when he had to play a top tier SEC team, like an Alabama or a Georgia or an LSU, you could see him trying to do things the right way and him failing miserably, like stumbling over his feet, throwing bad balls, yeah. making mistakes because he looked like the kid who was naturally gifted at math, but now getting stretched and asking him to do things that he actually had to practice and he had no experience practicing. But in the SEC, these coaches aren't going to, they don't have another quarterback at Missouri to go, oh, well, we're going to bench him and put another one and make him work right. for it. They're yeah. just going to go, Drew, when you get to the pros, you're going to have to work on this. Or this is something you should work on when you have time. But 
because he's not getting, it's not being enforced, and he's winning games against everybody but the top teams. He's even if he's not consciously thinking it in the back of his mind, he's thinking, "I can put that. I can do this later." And if he, and then if someone asked him why, he'd think about it and go, "Well, because you know nobody really said anything about it." So then he gets to the pros, and apparently Peyton Manning, first phone call at one of the early phone calls after the draft said. If you need anything, if there's anything I can do for you, you let me know. And Drew Locke said, thanks, ended the call, and that was that. Didn't, you know, yeah. some other players, like if it was Tom Brady and that happened, to a player like that happened, Tom Brady probably would go, okay, can I, do you have a garage that you can rent out? I will wash your cars. I will do yeah. chores, do whatever. If we can watch film every day and you can coach me. I want to be, I yeah. I will live with, I'll babysit your kids when there's not, whatever I need to do. You let me know, yes. you know, and Locke didn't do that. So then three years later, third year, they bring in Teddy Bridgewater and Drew Locke's now competing with Teddy Bridgewater for his job and loses the, loses the summer gig. Fast forward to that point, our, my friend Cecil Lammy, you know, you know, Cecil probably from football guys. Cecil, you know, covers the Broncos on air and and goes to and is part of media and goes to practices on a regular. And he's talking to Drew Locke's dad, and you know they're talking and and he told me he he told me during that summer he said yeah Drew Locke we were talking about him and I asked him about the competition and how things going and Drew's dad said listen I love my son my son is a great kid he's a caring human being good human being just all that but i've been telling him since high school that the things coaches have told him he needs to work on he needs he should apply himself more and he's never done it and he finally got the message and called peyton manning back in year three when teddy bridgewater was brought in yeah and it was too late it was too late at that point for him, yeah, at no, least for, in Denver. For sure. And yeah, that's I mean, yeah. that's a common yeah. thing. You don't have to be a bad person. You just may not understand the gravity of the situation you're in. And you're allowing all these people to tell you you're great all the time. You don't realize you're great for where you are. You're not great for where you're going. Yeah, it's, it's being situationally naive, right? Yeah. So... That's the funny thing to me. Look at it's funny because Geo Smith was kind of in Drew Locke's yes position. Yes, and now they're flipped. Um, but I think that's the thing, though. Is like I think that's going to happen with Dallas too. Oh yeah. Um, is you can just get there a lot more in college, especially if you you know you, you are at a school that needs you and like will kind of coddle you. Um, you know, Missouri might do right. Um, and that's what kind of happens is you don't learn as much because you're not being taught. You're being just pushed to just, all right, just yeah. keep doing what you're doing. It's great. We've never seen this shit before. It's awesome. Yeah. In contrast, Tom Brady. Yeah. You know, at Michigan. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When he yeah. talks about, he talks about yeah. being what the yeah. sixth or eighth guy and he's not getting yeah. enough play, time and practice. Yeah. And the coach is like, look, you can transfer and be a, quarterback somewhere else but if you're going to stay here 
You better treat every snap like it's the yeah, Super Bowl. 100%. Most kids would have just left, uh-uh. especially with and this. That's a, and that's yeah, yeah, and that's you know that's kind of the age we live in now. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting, um, you know, looking at that and, and how guys develop differently. Like, is Drew Locke going to be a starter somewhere? I don't know, probably not. But he's he proved on Monday night that he can be a very solid long term backup. Yes. Which is a freaking great career. Yes. And that's a, you know, that's something, you know, you kind of have to earn those stripes. Like guys like Gardner Minshew, right? Yep. Like Gardner Minshew is a freaking rock star in my mind. Like he yep. can, he can back up my quarterback any day of the week. Yes. Because he's someone I know can go in there, execute schematically, not make mistakes, just give me a chance to win. Yeah. And that is really what, from the ground level, what NFL offenses need, because there's a lot of bad quarterback play right now in the NFL, is just quarterbacks just give give the defense a chance yeah. and just set you up for success in the fourth quarter. But but yeah, that's some good stuff. Well, we're gonna we'll definitely next time talk about I, I Drew Lock, like talking about Drew Lock. Zach Wilson kind of next steps for those guys and where they go. That's that's awesome stuff. No, definitely, definitely. And we'll just and tap it off with you know I love the the Minshew reference because Minshew also knows exactly who he is. He has no illusions, I think, anymore about being 100%. a starter. I don't think he had any illusions about really being a starter when he entered the league, but he was going to give it his best to to do what he could. But I mean, this was a kid who thought he was going to be a coach. And now here he is. Yeah. He still has the same mattress that he found at a. They say at the, he found on a dumpster and and on campus. Now that's yeah. a nutty, but that's you can hilarious. tell he's he's holding on to every cent that he has and knows that 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 waterfall may stop, you know, on any play. And he and I yeah. and I admire him for the radical steps he's taking to do that, knowing that this is generational money that he might have. So, you, you know, yeah. With that, uh, you know, on that note, this is another great episode of Going Deep with Brandon Angelo. And, you know, you can find him on X at Angelo underscore fantasy. Um, Angelo's analysis, just great work. You can find me at mattwaldmanrsp.com. And we'll be seeing you in a couple weeks. Hope you have a wonderful holiday season. Um, we'll, I guess we're going to see you probably after the new year. So early yeah. happy new year to everybody out there. Yes, sir. Happy holidays.